The International Court of Justice isn't typically the most exciting place on Earth. The ICJ does a lot of stuff that, like, for individual states may be quite important, um, like maritime boundary delimination, um, but that the broader public is often very not interested in. But then the war between Israel and Hamas appeared on the docket. I think it is fair to say that this has been the wildest and most kind of unhinged experience I have ever had covering a case at the ICJ. The people here who believe that there needs to be a ceasefire, Israel needs to uh, stop its hostilities in Gaza, and all of the... The interest, the media attention, the number of protesters, um, counter-protesters sort of outside of the court has nothing like I have ever seen in my five years covering the court. Coming up on Today Explained, a provisional ruling from the ICJ. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Today Explained, Sean Ramos from here with Molly Quell from Courthouse News. She covers the International Court of Justice where there was big news on Friday. I think the biggest takeaway from what we saw on Friday when the court issued a ruling on provisional measures, um, which is sort of like an emergency order or like an injunction, is that the court sees that there is a plausible risk of genocide being committed in Gaza and has told Israel that it has to do everything that it can to prevent genocide. It has to allow in humanitarian aid, and it has to report back to the court within a month, and that will probably be sort of extended into a regular reporting period um, about what it is doing uh, yeah, to prevent um, and punish uh, genocide that may be occurring. Before we talk about this particular dispute, can you just tell us about the International Court of Justice? Like, what is this court? How do cases there usually work? The International Court of Justice, sometimes it gets dubbed as the World Court. It's um, the highest judicial organ of the United Nations. It was established uh, as a way to sort of keep countries from settling their disputes with military action and instead to take their disputes to a court and have judges settle them instead. It's based in The Hague, uh, so it often gets confused for the ICC, which is the International Criminal Court, where you sort of put actual people on trial, individuals on trial for crimes of genocide or crimes against humanity. So let's talk about this case. How did this all get started? 
So in December, um, South Africa announced that it was going to file proceedings against Israel under the 1948 Genocide Convention. That's a post-World War II treaty um, outlawing genocide. The reason that South Africa brought this case is because any country that is a party to the Genocide Convention can bring a case under the Genocide Convention. And what South African politicians say is they feel a particular kinship to the experiences of the Palestinians in Gaza because they are experiencing what they say is apartheid. And of course, South Africa very famously had this apartheid state situation for a long time. Um, And so they say that there is like a relationship there. Nelson Mandela famously declared that our own freedom as South Africans is incomplete without the freedom of Palestinians. And why is it another country? Why is it not Palestine? Why is it not the people of Gaza? Well, Palestine has a what I like to call an its complicated relationship with statehood. Um, Palestine is a party to the Genocide Convention. It's a little unclear if Palestine could bring a case at the court um, because Palestine is not completely recognized as an independent state. Um, Various different international bodies recognize Palestine in various different ways. And so it's legally untested, basically, is what lawyers will tell you. I think that that is, you know, one argument that we would have spent a lot of time kind of dragging out whether or not Palestine had standing to bring a case. I think also that, yeah, I mean, Palestine clearly has a lot going on at the moment. And that what South Africa will say is, is that all parties to the Genocide Convention have a obligation to prevent genocide wherever it is happening in the world. Genocide is a big word. How is South Africa arguing its case? The Genocide Convention outlaws more than just genocide, and this is like sometimes a common misconception. Um, It also outlaws incitement to commit genocide, complicity in genocide, failing to prevent genocide. So there's like kind of a longer list of sort of genocide-related crimes that are outlawed by the convention. Genocide isn't a numbers game, basically. I mean, this is, it's not about how many people you kill. It's that if your intention is to kind of wipe a population, a a subset of a population, an ethnic group, a religious group, or whatever, kind of off the map, that 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 is enough to be considered genocide. What South Africa says is that it's clear from the Israeli military action post-October 7th, or in response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th, that what Israel is trying to do is destroy in whole or in part a national ethnic group, the, the Palestinians. Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his address to the Israeli forces on 28 October 2023, preparing for the invasion of Gaza, urged the soldiers to remember what Amalek has done to you. This refers to the biblical command by God to Saul for the retaliatory destruction of an entire group of people known as the Amalekites. And also that they are allowing Israeli officials to go unpunished for committing acts of genocide, for committing incitement. So by saying things that sort of, you know, seem genocidal, that they are failing to do what they can to prevent uh, civilian deaths and protect civilians and civilian infrastructure like hospitals and schools. And all of this sort of when taken together is tantamount to genocide. And as they try to find food and water for their families, they have been killed if they failed to evacuate in the places to which they have fled. And even while they attempted to flee along Israeli-declared safe routes. 
what you sort of see in South Africa's 84-page filing is a lot of evidence from international observers, you know, different UN bodies about kind of how Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip are treated, the ways, the things that they are experiencing currently. So food shortages, water shortages, lack of access to medical care. You saw a lot of statements from Israeli officials kind of saying things that seem like they could be incitement to genocide. Um, you saw a lot of things in their application about showing video of IDF soldiers maybe like celebrating civilian deaths, this kinds of stuff, um, which sort of puts together this package that kind of South Africa says shows that that Israel is is committing genocide. And how many times has this court said there's been an attempted genocide, a genocide was committed? Once. Um, the only other time that the court has ruled that there was a genocide that has occurred um, was in a case um, brought by Bosnia against Serbia. This had to do with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And in that case, there was a specific incident that happened where 8,000 Muslim men and boys um, were killed um, in the town, outside the town of Srebrenica. So this gets called the Srebrenica genocide or the Srebrenica massacre. And in that case, what the court found was is that the government of Serbia had failed to prevent non-state actors, there's a lot of militias operating um, or sort of quasi-militias operating from committing genocide. So what was the defense that Israel's legal team mounted? So what Israel said um, during hearings two weeks ago over provisional measures is is that it has a legal right to defend itself, um, that the attacks of October 7th by Hamas were horrific, and that it has an obligation to respond to protected citizens. And that its actions in Gaza do not amount to genocide, that the threshold for genocide, legally speaking, is quite high, and that this does not meet that threshold. The key component of genocide, the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, is totally lacking. What Israel seeks by operating in Gaza is not to destroy a people, but to protect a people, its people. And it asked the court to chuck the case out in its entirety hmm. and said that there was no need for any provisional measures. Consistent case law suggests that assurances of the kind offered by Israel may well render the indication of provisional measures unnecessary. But the court did not chuck it out. The court did not. This isn't particularly surprising. The threshold for provisional measures is pretty low at the court for kind of obvious reasons, right? These cases take a long time. The idea of provisional measures is to sort of like calm the situation down a little bit, keep, you know, the people in question as protected as much as possible um, while the judges are sort of deciding kind of on the underlying issues. The judges only have to think that there's like a plausible risk um, that the rights protected by the convention are being violated. So that, you know, th that there's a plausible risk that genocide is occurring or could occur um, in Gaza. Okay. And on Friday, we got a provisional ruling. Yes. What does it say? The court ordered um, Israel to adhere to six provisional measures. The state of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, it's maybe worth noting that South Africa had asked for nine things. And basically what they said is that, you know, they sort of reiterated this obligation that Israel has to prevent um, and punish acts of genocide. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. 
C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. That it needs to allow in humanitarian assistance, um, that it has to report back to the court about the measures that it is taking, that it needs to punish um, examples of genocide as they are occurring. And that also can mean things like incitement to commit genocide or failing to preserve evidence of genocide, this kinds of stuff. But this was not a ruling, most importantly, on whether or not some genocide has been committed. No, Israel did not convince the court that there's not a plausible risk that genocide is occurring in Gaza. So the the court says that there is a risk of this happening um, and that Israel has obligations to not allow it to happen um, or stop it if it is doing it. But we won't get a ruling as to whether or not there is a genocide occurring until much, much later. I mean, it will be years before we before we have a definitive verdict on that. And that's just how it goes at the International Court of Justice? That is how the wheels of international justice turn. You can read and follow Molly Quell's work at courthousenews.com. When we return on today, explained what this provisional ruling means for Israel and Gaza. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for the show comes from Shopify today. Shopify is, of course, the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. You know that friend of yours who's like on that next level yoga, who's like doing backflips? That's like Shopify when it comes to helping your business sell at every stage of growth. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. And right now they're offering Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to give you a little boost and help you stress less and sell more. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash explained. Go to shopify.com slash explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash explained. Support. 
Support for the show already comes from Delete Me. Your personal information is online. So is mine. I don't think I'm breaking any news by saying that, but you might be surprised to know just how much of your information is available not only for people to see, but to sell as well. And that's where Delete Me comes in. Delete Me wants to help you keep things such as your name, number, home address, and other private information out of the hands of data brokers. I've never personally kept my information out of the hands of data brokers, but perhaps Vox's business team's Claire White has. Removing the data that Delete Me found was super easy because I didn't have to do anything. They already removed my information across sites that they deemed as unsafe. I truly did not have to lift a finger. You can take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. You can get 20% off your Delete Me plan today when you go to joindeleteme.com slash today and use the promo code today at checkout. Again, you can get 20% off by going to joindeleteme.com slash today and enter the code TODAY at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash TODAY. The code is TODAY. Today Explained is back. We wanted to find out what this preliminary ruling means for the ongoing war in Gaza, so we reached out to Robert Bletcher from the International Crisis Group. He and his outfit are big proponents of peace. Robert spent years focusing on the Middle East. We started with expectations going into this case at the ICJ. There were some expectations going into the case um, because of the um, enormity of the events on the ground. Um, So I think on the Palestinian side, you had people hoping that um, they would get the ultimate outcome for them, which which would have been uh, the court ordering a ceasefire. Um, That was always extremely unlikely, and I think most people uh, knew that, um, even among Palestinians. Um, But I think especially for Palestinians who are in Gaza now, um, who are living in some appalling conditions um, and who really are just absolutely at the end of or beyond the end of their coping capacities, the prospect of anything short of a ceasefire was going to be a disappointment. Um, and you know, sure enough, that indeed is what happened for the people who are living in the worst of conditions. Anything short of um, what one of them referred to as a red card uh, for Israel was a disappointment. And he said in the end, they got a yellow card instead of a red card. We wanted them to get a red card. I think most people were expecting something along the lines of, of what we saw in the end, which was moving forward with it because the bar for plausibility, um, even though when it comes to something like genocide, you would think it would be fairly high, but like the bar for for plausibility in this kind of extreme war situation is actually not that high. How consequential is the yellow card? It's politically consequential. And, you know, I think you can, you can see that, it's, that there's a change in the international discourse around Israel-Palestine. You can see already during this war um, how in the days after October 7th, there was enormous international sympathy with Israel after the horrendousness of, of those attacks and all the people that were murdered. Um, but we very quickly moved into um, the war where in the, what, three plus um, months, almost four months since, the the balance of victimhood um, has shifted, right? This is um, this is like, we, we frequently see this in Israel, Palestine, and in other places where there's sort of a competition over who's the biggest victim. And this case is going to go on for years. 
Um, and for years now, you're going to have Israel and genocide connected um, in, in, the, in, in media, in public conversation, um, and things like that have effects. So, Rob, since we're talking about the politics of this provisional ruling from the International Court of Justice, let's talk about political responses, starting with those in, let's say, Gaza, Palestine. Yeah. So in Gaza, uh, people are um, people are are, are 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 happy that it, that the case is moving forward and that the case wasn't stopped as it could have been. It could have been thrown out um, even at this early stage. But I think in Gaza, for the people who were suffering most, they uh, wanted to see um, a, a, a further step by the court. They wanted to see uh, a ceasefire ordered. For other Palestinian leaders, it's a, it's a victory of sorts. It's a recognition of the fact that, um, that uh, Israel's uh, campaign um, has, is being seen now as incredibly violent, as, potential, as potentially or plausibly in the language of the court, uh, plausibly being uh, seen as a genocide. Um, and so that's um, a win in terms of the global narrative. So something akin to a win here on the Palestinian side, what about the Israeli side? On the Israeli side, there's outrage. You know, the fact that um, Israel, um, which was, uh, you know, born in the ashes of the Holocaust, and um, you know, for whom the the Holocaust, you know, was uh, the event which led to the uh, the genocide convention. Um, so, for the idea that Israel would be connected to genocide is uh, just wrong and offensive uh, for many in Israel. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous, and decent people everywhere should reject it. On the eve of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I again pledge as Israel's prime minister, never again. And so there's a good deal of, uh, there's a good deal of consternation about the fact that the court would have gone this way, but among the leadership, it was also expected that I think everybody was thinking that the court was going to take some kind of middle ground here. They were not going to order a ceasefire, but they were not going to throw out the case. And so they were somewhere in the middle with these provisional measures. And even the Israeli ad hoc justice, uh, you know, each each of the sides gets to appoint um, a justice uh, to sit uh, with the rest of the justices of the, of the ICJ. Even the Israeli justice uh, voted with... Um, um, the vast majority on two of the provisional measures. One of them was uh, the uh, necessity of increasing uh, humanitarian aid and basic goods and essential services. Uh, so, you know, when you even have the Israeli justice voting on positively or voting affirmatively on that issue, you know, you can see how among the establishment in Israel, they, they knew it was coming. So how does the International Court of Justice enforce its yellow card? How does it make sure that people in Gaza get more humanitarian aid, that, that Israel prevent a genocide? It doesn't. Uh, there is no enforcement mechanism uh, for the ICJ. If there were to be an enforcement mechanism, it would be the UN Security Council. So the, the Security Council would need to follow up and and pass a resolution which would be binding, um, and there would be the potential for enforcement. Uh, that's extremely unlikely to happen in this case uh, because of the political shield, the veto that the U.S. has at the Security Council, and it will use uh, to prevent any kind of uh, follow-up. Um, but I think it's worth adding here that even though uh, most people are looking at this and saying, well, there's no enforcement mechanism, it's interesting to look what's happened in Israel over the last couple of days. 
Okay, so not a lot of teeth here from the International Court of Justice, which we've covered on the show before. And yet, we get this provisional ruling on Friday, and by Sunday, we're seeing news that there might be a two-month ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. Is that related, Rob? Yeah, I would say that the ICJ ruling is coming together with a bunch of other factors that is creating pressure on Israel to change the way that it's conducting this campaign. So it's the ICJ ruling. It's also the fact that there is growing frustration in Washington with the fact that Washington has been pushing for more humanitarian aid, for figuring out how to get to a ceasefire, for figuring out what a day after in Gaza eventually would look like. Um, obviously, there's a lot of international pressure from other um, addresses, not just from the U.S. So when you put the ICJ together with a bunch of other stuff, there's a lot of pressure on Israel. And I would say this just this just ups the ante. I think if you want to look for specific consequences, you could look on a slightly smaller scale. Um, over the past week, there have been protesters in Israel blocking the access of even the small amount of humanitarian aid that Israel has been letting in. There have been Israeli protesters, uh, right, uh, people on the far right, and also some of the hostage families, blocking those trucks from moving into Gaza. Um, Israel was not preventing those protests until the ICJ decision came down. After the ICJ decision came down, requiring more humanitarian uh, access, more humanitarian goods, the next day, Israel cleaned out those protesters so the trucks could go in. Um, that's not a coincidence. So, you know, I think you can say that even if Israel rejects officially and the prime minister stands up and rails against how outrageous the judgment is, when you look at what's happening on the ground, they don't want to do things now that are going to be used as evidence or leverage against them later in the process. Do you think ultimately that's what this was all about? If, if, if everyone knew going into this that a genocide ruling would take years, that, that the International Court of Justice doesn't have teeth, that, that any enforcement would have to come through the UN Security Council on which the United States sits and would certainly veto any such decision, that this ultimately was just about putting more pressure to get humanitarian aid into Gaza to put more pressure to get a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel? That could have been one motivation. Um, I, think, I think it probably was one of South Africa's considerations, but I think more broadly you're seeing the shift in the international or global discourse around Israel-Palestine and actors in the so-called global south um, are becoming more assertive. They've seen uh, what leaving uh, the supposed peace process to the U.S. Um, and other traditional actors has yielded, which is not much. Uh, and uh, in, when you look around the world now, increasingly, a lot of middle powers, um, as they're often called outside of the West, are exerting their, uh, you know, whether it's moral authority or their, or the power of their arms industry or their economic power. Um, I think you're, you're seeing that happen in a number of different consequences. And one of the weapons, I suppose you could say, or one of the capacities or, uh, of South Africa um, is, is a moral one, is a moral credibility on the basis of the fight against apartheid. Um, and they're mobilizing that in the international sphere in a way which they have not before. Um, and they're trying to change the way people talk about Israel-Palestine. 
That was Rob Bletcher. He's the Future of Conflict Director at the International Crisis Group. Our program today was put together by Halima Shah and Victoria Chamberlain, with lots of help from Isabel Angel, Amanda Llewellyn, Matthew Collette, Laura Bullard, and Patrick Boyd. It's Today Explained. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on? Oh, Mom. <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.